0: This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the New York Times. Right now you can get full digital access to the world's greatest newspaper and Trump's greatest nemesis for only $1 a week. $1 to help the New York Times piss off the president who might be voted out tomorrow. I'm not going to tell you which way to go with that, but needless to say, the New York Times I'm sure will cover whatever the hell is going to happen after that vote is cast. Go to nytimes.com to get started. This episode is also being brought to you by Ventura Watches. Ventura makes super high-quality and stunning watches, and by cutting out the middleman and selling them to you directly on their website, you can get a premium watch for a lot less than buying one in the store. Listeners of Let's Talk About Chef can use the promo code CHEF, that's C-H-E-F at checkout, to get 20% off your entire first order. So if you're in the market for a watch that will stand out from the pack, go to VenturaWatches.com and use the promo code CHEF. Before we get started on this episode of the podcast, I just want to say that if you for any reason want to email the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at chefbrianclark. This podcast is only as popular as it is because of word of mouth, and if you can take literally five seconds of your day to help spread the word about the show to someone you think would like it, I would be very thankful. This week's episode is yet another installment of our Let's Review series, where in the past we have reviewed such things as Salt, My Grandmother's Mac and Cheese, Sexist Pies, Momofuku, The Sound of Restaurants, and the anonymous hot dog vendor outside of the Rogers Centre in Toronto, to name a few. This week we continue by reviewing the architecture of Pizza Huts, and also this podcast that I've been making for almost two years called Let's Talk About Chef. That's enough from me, let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Let's review the architecture of Pizza Hut's. Being a child growing up in suburban Southern Ontario in the 90s was about as predictable as you could imagine. I realize now as I get older that I was very lucky in my childhood because money was never an issue and food was always on the table. Sometimes I think about how busy my days are as a 34 year old man with no children and wonder how my parents managed to control everything in their lives, as well as raise three children and it makes me feel slightly guilty. But I've also come to realize that part of raising a family is not unlike hanging off of a cliff by your fingertips and hoping that you don't fall. Restaurants in the 90s in Kitchener, Ontario basically sucked. There were of course institutions that still survive to this day, but as a child I wasn't interested in eating at cool places with interesting menus. I and my sisters wanted one thing and one thing only, and that was the buffet at Pizza Hut, in my young mind the greatest restaurant experience in the world. Going to a Pizza Hut as a child was not unlike winning the lottery. You were absolutely the coolest kid in school if, when lining up outside of your classroom, the question would inevitably be asked by another classmate of what did you do the night before. And on the off chance that I had visited Mecca, I would look at them and shrug and say, Oh, nothing. Just went to Pizza Hut for dinner. And that classmate would stare stunned, mouth open, and with a burning jealousy in their eyes, whispers passing up and down the line that the temple at the top of the gastronomic mountain had been visited by a mere mortal and that he had come back to spread the gospel of the salad bar. I remember one time my friend Chad Armstrong had his birthday party at Pizza Hut, and he even went as far as to pass out Pizza Hut-themed invitations weeks in advance, partly because his mother was a surgeon and therefore probably very organized. But to my seven-year-old brain, he did it because he wanted the three weeks leading up to his birthday at the king of restaurants to belong to him, and the ability to revoke an invitation if you displeased him meant that he got his choice of good swings on the swing set and also he got to decide who was sent into exile by playing goalie during recess soccer games. Only a fool would speak up if Chad selected you for goalie, a position that nobody wanted to play lest he decide to take back the pizza slice invitation to his birthday party in heaven and leave you as a social outcast. The social currency of having a pizza party at Pizza Hut is far too powerful for children, and it changes them into monsters. One time, when the sequel to the live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle film, The Secret of the Ooze, was in theaters, Pizza Hut did a promotion where if you ate at Pizza Hut and went to the dessert bar, you got to fill out an application to win a Ninja Turtle-themed basketball, basically cementing you as the coolest kid alive. Well, I went to that dessert bar, made some monstrosity of a sprinkle-colored sundae, and wrote my name on a little card. The next morning, when I showed up to school with the Ninja Turtle-themed basketball under my arm, despite having any skill of actual playing basketball... That seven-year-old asshole Chad was usurped as the leader of the pack, and my scrawny ass with my fucking awesome basketball became king. Going to Pizza Hut became synonymous with pretty much every aspect of my childhood. You went there when your team won a game, or lost one. A lot of children would put up with the utter humiliation of being on a losing baseball or hockey team, just so that at the end of the season you and your fellow losers could go to the team party at Pizza Hut and all of the troubles of not making your fathers proud by being good at sports disappeared while you stood in line at the pizza buffet with your white circular plate empty and ready to be filled with the bounty of slightly warm pizza and then on to the dessert bar. Pizza Hut didn't start out its life as the revered children's nirvana with a red brick and even brighter red roof. In fact, it began in 1958 by two Wichita State University students and also brothers, Dan and Frank Carney, A friend of the brothers at a party suggested that they open a pizza parlor, something that was rare back then, and after borrowing $600 from their mother, they bought used equipment and started making pizzas for the town. On their first opening day, they gave pizza away to everyone who walked by, and it was such a hit that within six months they had opened a second location, and had six locations within the first three years. And after that, they began franchising and Pizza Hut was all of a sudden everywhere, including the one that dominated my hometown's dining landscape. By the 1970s, Pepsi had bought Pizza Hut, and there were Pizza Huts from Canada to Russia, where, oddly enough, the most popular pizza in Russia is called the Mescava, which is a pie topped with sardines, tuna, mackerel, salmon, and onion. The most popular pizza in Asia is one covered in curry. The iconic red roof of Pizza Hut didn't come along until 1969, when the restaurant brand started to be opened internationally. The Kearney brothers wanted to ensure that their pizza huts could stand out from the rest of the pack, and they reached out to their friend from university, architect Richard D. Burke, for help. Burke agreed to design the new restaurant, but wanted a pretty big upfront fee. The brothers, instead of agreeing to a massive fee, offered him $1,000 per store that used the red roof design. They never guessed at the time that so many other pizza huts would open in such a short period of time, basically making the architect a shit ton of money. One of the other architects who worked with Burke said that the red roof design was a fusion of common sense, the architectural taste of the 1950s, and a need for the buildings to be appealing. Whatever the reasoning behind that, the red roof, seeing one as a child out of the window of your parents' car growing closer was one of the best feelings in the world. Pizza Hut by the 1990s was unstoppable. You couldn't watch a half hour of television without seeing an ad for Pizza Hut. They even spent $20 million in 1990, to advertise the Ninja Turtles' first movie, and even had a concert tour where the four Ninja Turtles would play rock and roll concerts to screaming children, and even sponsored the release of their cassette tape called Out of Their Shells. I had that cassette as a child, and it rocked. But Pizza Hut, like so many other brands from the 90s, has suffered massively in this generation. Despite still being the world's largest pizza chain, Pizza Huts are closing now at an alarming rate. And moving away from the gargantuan red roof spaces they used to occupy to instead small boring looking places and strip malls and focusing on delivery what they're leaving behind isn't just the death of childhood memories but also buildings that are so obviously former pizza huts that it seems kind of crazy that anyone would want to open a business in one and yet people do all of the time former pizza huts have been turned into funeral homes churches chinese food restaurants and even vintage clothing stores And you can see all of these places, probably in your hometown. just look for the roof that's probably painted a different color. As an adult, I now find myself seeing these defunct pizza huts and my mind instantly goes back to being in awe of them as a child. There are only so many things in life that can instantly take you back to that feeling when everything was magical and schoolyard popularity could be controlled by the graphic on a basketball or a pizza slice shaped invitation that held all of the secrets to life. I didn't get to go to Chad Armstrong's birthday party at the Pizza Hut that year, because he tried to make me play goalie and I told him that I refused. He took back his invitation that I had stored in my desk with a vengeance. Instead, I went with my baseball team a few weeks later to celebrate our victory over Chad's team. I remember a lot of what happened in that game, and I remember being benched a lot because I absolutely suck at baseball. I know for a fact that Chad was the pitcher and struck me out every time I went to bat and would clumsily swing at every fastball that son of a bitch would throw at me, but in the ninth inning, the best player on my team jumped about six feet in the air and caught the seemingly laser beam line drive that Chad had hit towards my position in right field, ending the game with us winners of that year's league. I do remember running back to the circle of my teammates jumping up in the air and celebrating, and I remember running past Chad who was crying on home plate. And I looked at him and smiled just as our coach yelled that we were going to Pizza Hut, and Chad started sobbing. And I discovered in that moment that revenge didn't taste as sweet as I thought it would. But my god, the endless soft serve ice cream at that Pizza Hut dessert bar later was the sweetest thing I have ever tasted. Fuck you, Chad. I'm giving the architecture of Pizza Huts five stars. Rock and roll audio cassette with 10 hot tunes only at one place. Pizza Hut from $3.99. Why Pizza Hut? Because they don't sell pizza in record stores, too. Pizza Let's review making Let's Talk About Chef. I've often been confused about the relationship between myself and you, the listener, of this podcast. I find myself sometimes wondering who you are and what you're doing when you do listen to this little show that I created almost two years ago in my living room. It's strange for me to think about other people listening to this show and enjoying it and being fans of it because, if I'm being totally honest, I made this show for me. Because I was miserable and it came about during one of the worst times in my life. Let's talk about Chef was never meant to become big, It was never meant to be listened to around the world by thousands and thousands of people. It was meant to provide me with a type of digital security blanket, or in another sense, therapy, to try and make sense of what was happening in my life. I should probably explain. The first time that the idea for Let's Talk About Chef came up in my head, I was very, very miserable. I was 32 years old in a marriage that was over but not done yet and usually alone by myself in a big house in the country, and I would just come out of a two-month bender of drinking a lot of bourbon to try and deal with the fact that I had been backstabbed by every person I knew and had trusted, and had suddenly become very aware of the fact that I had lost tens of thousands of very real dollars. I've always been some type of an entrepreneur, and I would opened a restaurant with my wife at the time and we had done really, really well, and so we took on partners to make another restaurant slash brewery thing and spent all of that money in our account on building it. Now, I don't think I'm legally allowed to talk about what happened during this time, and I don't really want to, so let me just say that one day I was all of a sudden not an owner anymore of that establishment, and I only now had one restaurant with the very real reality of winter coming to a seasonal town and no way to afford to keep it open. I was, in the most eloquent of words, fucked. After the restaurant I had closed, which was frankly inevitable, I had a month between starting to work for another restaurant in town and all of a sudden was at home with basically crippling depression and about 68 bottles of bourbon. Needless to say, I am of Irish descent, and being able to squash away bad feelings with alcohol is something of a genetically inherited talent, and so I went at it with gusto. One day, I was sitting at home and I looked at my computer and decided I was going to distract myself from the very real anger that was still boiling in my veins and write something. So I did. I wrote the first episode of Let's Talk About Chef on Escoffier in one go, And after about an hour and a half, I read back what I had written, and for the first time in a very long time started laughing, and it felt good. I came up with the name of the show on the fly, and before long had decided that I wanted to throw my proverbial hat into the ring of podcasters with podcasts, and have this very oddly specific show on iTunes, not for fame or glory, and especially not for money, but it was because it was something that was mine, and it couldn't be taken away from me. Nobody could come in the night with fancy lawyers and shady business dealings and steal away Let's Talk About Chef because all of the knowledge and all of the random facts that I knew about chefs and restaurants were all in my head. I had spent the last decade reading and watching everything I could get my hands on about this chosen field, and no one could steal that out of my brain. I honestly, and I mean this, believe that nobody would ever listen to this show ever, and I was fine with that, and I was very, very wrong. The coffee episode took me an entire day to record, and I, then I had to figure out the intricacies of posting it onto a platform and put it up online and walked away from the computer, feeling accomplished, and like I had done something positive for a change, and I liked how that made me feel. Now, this is the part of the story where if it was a movie, I would wake up in the night and check the listens and see the show had exploded and that tens of thousands of people were listening and loving it, and I was going to get a book deal and everything was going to be great. Well, the next morning, I checked the listens and saw that exactly seven people had listened to the first episode. And I'm fairly certain that I was four of those because I had really enjoyed listening to the show on the Alexa in my kitchen. But I didn't care, and I instantly started writing the next episode about Marco Pierre White. By that time I had posted the second episode, Let's Talk About Chef, I was completely hooked. Disappearing into my computer every week when I was home meant that I could very blatantly ignore pretty much everything bad in my life. And I also realized that I was going to run out of chefs really fast, so I started writing about pretty much anything I wanted to talk about or find interesting. I apparently have quite an addictive personality, and I was addicted to talking into a microphone and writing for hours on end. For the next six months, I made an episode a week. My schedule for the show would be this. I would post the new episode on Thursday morning. By the time I got to work, I usually had an idea about what I was going to talk about for the next episode, and I'd spend Thursday and Friday reading everything I could about it. Then on Saturday, I would find the music for the show, and on Sunday, I would usually write the entire episode in one go, and that would normally take me a few hours. I would read what I wrote and edit it on Mondays and record the episode on Tuesdays, which was normally my day off. Then I would drop the music in on Wednesday and post it on Thursday, getting ready to repeat the process again, and it was a process that was comforting to me. Now, during this six-month straight spree, I was kind of like an ostrich with their head in the sand. I didn't really pay attention to anything else other than what I was writing about. And while all of this reading and writing was happening, the show's audience by the third episode had grown to hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands. And that was when something really wonderful and completely unexpected happened. Emails from listeners started to flood in. Every week, emails would show up and people would tell me about their own stories, their own struggles, and their own mishaps. I would read about how much Let's Talk About Chef meant to people, and in three different cases the words this show saved my life came across my screen. The first time I read that sentence that was sent by a stranger I vividly recall sitting back in the blue chair that I always write this podcast in and saying the words holy fuck very loudly. Let's Talk About Chef had started as an excuse for me to disappear and I made it for me. And now it wasn't mine anymore. The weight of responsibility for making this podcast became very real, and I was so happy that in some odd way the universe decided that even though I was trying to help myself, I had helped others. And that still blows me away. Let's Talk About Chef is now 60 episodes long. Each episode is roughly 6 pages of text on my computer in size 11 font, so that's 360 pages of words. If you were to start the show from the beginning and listen to every episode, it would take you 1,452 minutes, or quite literally 24 hours. An entire day of me talking, and that's a lot. It's listened to in over 94 countries, from my own country of Canada to Japan and Bulgaria and Ecuador and pretty much every country you can think of, which is something that still feels weird to think about. It's listened to in 1,830 cities around the world, and is one of the most popular food podcasts. The real reason that it's strange is because I still make this show in the exact same place I always have, in my blue wooden chair at my kitchen table with my MacBook that is 10 years old and is such an outdated 2008 version of GarageBand that it still has podcasting options on it. Even though Let's Talk About Chef hasn't changed, pretty much everything in my life has, and it's gotten better. And I owe that in some large way to this silly show that made me dig into my memories and relive past experiences and realize I was sad and that I wanted to be happy. And now I am. In the end, something that was supposed to be mine, that was supposed to be an experiment in being okay, and something that couldn't be owned by anybody else, became a show that's owned by everyone who listens to it. I don't know when Let's Talk About Chef will end for good. It's better to burn out than to fade away, but I still have a lot more to say. It's just refreshing that I want to say it from a good place and not a dark one. These last few months I've been skipping weeks of episodes. And it's not because I don't care. It's because I want to make sure that I can give you shows that you deserve. Because the last thing I would want is to make a bad episode of this show, and it quite frankly means too much to too many people for me to waste your time. A year ago, I used to come home from work and sit in front of my computer and write because I couldn't imagine how I could possibly deal with all of the bad things that I knew I would eventually have to deal with. I didn't want to face demons and face the horrific nagging thought that I wasn't happy. And so Let's Talk About Chef became a journal, a way for me to talk, and even though it might have been about my grandmother's sexist pies or the poison squad or death row meals or salt, in some odd way, every topic was about me. And I would spend a week writing down how I felt about something. And that is a luxury that most people don't have. Spending a week getting to the bottom of a problem that you know is there, but it's just slightly out of reach. Eventually, I realized while writing the Royale and Joe Beef episode that I wanted to change my life completely. And it sounds so simple to say that. But it took a year of writing episodes for my brain to say, you're 33 years old and you can make yourself happy loud enough for me to pay attention. And so I did. I changed everything. And then the world changed. And I look forward to the next chapter in my life, a chapter that will still have me sitting in front of a computer and writing these weird open letters that I then post online. But this time it'll be for the right reasons of because I want to, not because I have to, and because other people need this show too. Let's Talk About Chef has stayed the same, but everything in my life because of this show has changed and I'm happy and I hope that you're happy too. Because for as long as there's people that want to think of me as some friend talking about things they never knew they cared about, I'll keep doing this. And I thank you for listening. I'm giving Making Let's Talk About Chef five stars. Have a great service, and have a great week.